Guardian Unlimited. Orders. Questions to the Prime Minister, Lee Scott. Number one, Mr. Speaker. Uh, Mr. Speaker, sir, this morning I meet with ministerial colleagues and others in addition to my duties in the House. I will further such meetings later today. Would the Prime Minister please look into the fact that my constituents in Ilford North are faced with the prospects of having to travel for 35 minutes by car and for over an hour by public transport to get to the proposals for their, late, their nearest accidents and emergency department? First of all, let me say I appreciate entirely the Honourable Gentleman's concern and also he will know that there are no firm proposals that have been made yet. His local health service has made a, a, a set of uh, propositions or is engaged in consultations. And these, as they have said, will be based upon the safety of constituents, particularly for using emergency services. Let me also just point out to him that it is important that we recognise that there have been somewhere in the region of 26 public hospital schemes opened in the Strategic Health Authority that covers this area with a value of £1.7 billion. There are three schemes under construction and no fewer than 25 lift schemes for local services have been opened. So I entirely understand his concern and these proposals, as I understand it, no decisions have been made yet, but I can assure him the important thing will be to make sure that people get the very best care possible. But he will also, I hope, recognise that sometimes it is in the interest, for example, of those that have suffered strokes or heart disease or trauma to be able to go to the best specialist services available with the best paramedic care. George Hough. Mr Speaker, can I congratulate my right honourable friend and the government for the patience they've shown in helping to bring about the restoration of devolution in Northern Ireland? And can I congratulate the, all of the parties in Northern Ireland for having the courage to take hold of the power that the people of Northern Ireland have placed in their hands? And will my right honourable friend agree with me that alongside power goes responsibility, including the responsibility to set a reasonable level of public expenditure? Well, I agree uh, entirely with what my honourable friend says, and I thank him for, for um, the thanks to, to myself and others engaged in this. I would, however, like to give my thanks to those that have shown uh, such leadership in Northern Ireland and to the people of Northern Ireland that have, have shown and decided in the recent election that they want a future for Northern Ireland where people from different perspectives can come together, can share power, and share power on the basis of peace. That is a sensible and lasting solution for the people of Northern Ireland and I know it is one that enjoys broad support right across the United Kingdom. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I join the Honourable Member for, for Knowsley in congratulating the Prime Minister for bringing these um, negotiations to a successful conclusion and also congratulate those that are taking part in power sharing. It has been difficult for them, but they are doing a brave and, I believe, a great thing. There can be no excuse for Iran taking our Royal Navy personnel captive in Iraqi waters and holding them prisoner. They should be released immediately. The Prime Minister said negotiations were entering a different phase. While clearly he mustn't say anything which jeopardises our personnel, can he tell us what he thinks that will involve? Well, um, first of all, uh, let me say, and I'm sure this is, is the position of everyone in, in this House, that our thoughts are with... Um, our servicemen and the servicewomen and their families. And their safe return is our paramount concern. However, let me be very clear as to what has happened here. 
These personnel were patrolling in Iraqi waters under a United Nations mandate. Their boarding and checking of the Indian merchant vessel was routine. There was no justification whatever, therefore, for their detention. It was completely unacceptable, wrong and illegal. We had hoped to see their immediate release. This has not happened. It is now time to ratchet up the diplomatic and international pressure in order to make sure that the Iranian government understands their total isolation on this issue. This morning, we published the details of the exact coordinates and position of our forces when detained. They were 1.7 nautical miles within Iraqi territorial waters. The master of the civilian merchant vessel has confirmed this. Initially, on Saturday, the Iranian government gave us their coordinates for the incident. These coordinates turned out to confirm that the vessel was indeed within Iraqi waters. After this was pointed out to them, they subsequently gave a different set of coordinates, this time within Iranian waters. We are now in contact with all our key allies and partners to explain this incontrovertible fact that the seizure of the 15 British personnel was utterly without foundation and to step up the pressure on the Iranian government to deliver their immediate release. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I know that the whole House and I believe the country will actually be grateful for that uh, very full answer. As the Prime Minister said, our service personnel were operating under a UN mandate. Does the Prime Minister agree that as a result the UN should make crystal clear to Iran that the present situation is completely unacceptable? Can he tell us the steps that he's taking to mobilise support in the UN and amongst our allies in the EU and NATO and amongst sympathetic Gulf states to maximise the pressure on Iran? Well, first of all, uh, let me thank him for his support and say that we have uh, been speaking obviously extensively to all our key allies and partners. I spoke this morning to um, Prime Minister Erdogan of Turkey, who has been in touch with the Iranian government. Uh, the German Chancellor this afternoon in her speech to the European Parliament um, will speak on behalf of the European Union, since Germany has the, the presidency of the European Union, and make it clear uh, that the European Union as a whole finds this situation entirely unacceptable and that these people should be released. We are also in close contact with our partners and other members of the United Nations Security Council, and of course uh, next week the UK assumes the presidency of the UN Security Council. So we are in touch with everyone, both within Europe, within NATO, in the United Nations, and our key allies out in the Gulf region. And we will do everything we can to make the Iranian government realize that this is a situation which can only result in one sensible and fair outcome, and that is the release of people who were merely doing their job under a United Nations mandate. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Prime Minister says there's absolutely no doubt that our service personnel, when they were taken, were in Iraqi territorial waters. Given UK forces are operating all the time in Iraqi waters and they're all operating under a UN mandate, will he make sure that they do have clear rules of engagement? I'm, no, I'm, I'm actually... Uh, I, I'm, no, I, I'm, I'm glad that he has raised this issue of rules of engagement because I think it's important that we, we, we deal with it. But first of all, the I should make it absolutely clear that the rules of engagement do allow our forces to take whatever measures necessary in their own self-defence. However, in my view, it was entirely sensible that those on the spot 
conducted themselves and behaved in the way that they did. They were coming down off the merchant civilian vessel, having checked it. They were then surrounded by six Iranian vessels, which were heavily armed. If they had engaged in military combat at that stage, there would undoubtedly have been severe loss of life. I think they took the right decision and did what was entirely sensible. In addition, of course, we always keep the rules of engagement under constant review to make sure that we are carrying out our functions properly and protecting our people properly. But my understanding is that those who are actually out there and patrolling these waters believe that the rules of engagement are, are right. So it is important, I think, we understand one other additional fact, which is that by the time HMS Cornwall knew um, that our forces had been detained unlawfully by the Iranians, they were then in Iranian waters, and again, military engagement would have put a lot of lives at risk. So I think that they took the right decision, and I think it's important that those types of decisions are left to people out on the ground. Jimmy Hood. Is my right honourable friend aware of the tax and spend policies of the SNP in the coming Scottish Parliament elections, which, will, which would cost the hard-working farmers in Scotland £5,000 each? What advice has my right honourable friend got for those who are tempted to follow the SNP into the abyss of separation, divorce and break up the United Kingdom? Uh, I say to the Prime Minister, the question was out of order. Uh, Sir Mingus Campbell. Uh, may I add my congratulations to those who have been responsible for making such progress in Northern Ireland. And in relation to Iran, may I content myself simply by offering my support to the government in its efforts to ensure the early release uh, of our Marines and sailors. Why is it, as the government's own report demonstrated this week, that the poorest fifth of people in this country have a lower share of national income than they did in 1997. Actually, as I was trying to point out to the Right Honourable Gentleman last week, not merely have we raised some 600,000 children out of relative poverty, I think almost 2 million out of absolute poverty, the, the actual percentage rise in incomes for the bottom 40% between 1979 and 1997 they were, the percentage rise in their income was way below that of the top 40%. That has been reversed over the past few years, and a combination of a strong economy, the tax credits, the minimum wage, have actually delivered for the first time in years real reductions in poverty. And if you won't answer this question, perhaps I might try another. After last week's budget, does he accept that for those earning less than £18,500 a year, who are not eligible for tax credits, they will have to pay an increase in income tax. How fair is that? Yeah. But again, if I could ask the right honourable gentleman to look at it in the round, actually, those, no, those families... Those families over the past 10 years have seen their incomes rise in percentage terms by more than the top people, and in addition to that... well. As a result of the measure, I may say the Tories may shout, they opposed every one of these measures to take down poverty in our country. As a result of the investment in tax credits, particularly for families with children, they have benefited enormously over these past few years. Now, I agree with them that we have to do even more. That is why the measures announced by the Chancellor will actually take an additional 200,000 children out of poverty. And all the time as the economy grows, we've got to put even more resources into tackling child poverty. But this government is doing it. The last government didn't. Yeah.
I'm big. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, as a result of last week's budget, by 2009, Scottish families will, on average, be £200 a year better off, while for poorer families, this rises to £350. What does my right honourable friend think will happen to the income of these same families if, by 2009, Scotland has embarked on the road to independence? There is no doubt at all. <laughs> <laughs> there is no doubt at all that it's not merely that the problem of taking Scotland out of the United Kingdom is going to lead to a huge economic risk for Scotland, for Scottish industry, which is so closely connected with the UK economy. But actually, the tax and spending plans of the SNP will mean that families are £5,000 a year worse off. And in addition, they've got a 3p local income tax, which will also deliver lower living standards for precisely the people that she's talking about. Stuart Jackson. Yesterday, Sir Alistair Graham said that the Prime Minister has undermined trust in politicians, that he has failed on ethical standards and radical changes are needed in the ministerial code. In view of this, does he feel qualified to offer advice to his successor on reviewing the code, given the lamentably low standards of public probity he has presided over in the last ten years? Well, I'm afraid I have to say I completely and totally disagree with Sir Alistair Graham. He's entitled to his opinion, but I'm entitled to mine. Geraldine Smith. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The government have done a superb job in regenerating our inner cities. Yeah. But isn't it now time to put the same energy, commitment, and resources into regenerating British seaside resorts such as Morecambe and Blackpool? <laughs> well, I agree. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I agree. It is indeed important that we regenerate our seaside resorts. But that's precisely why the regeneration package, for example, for, for Blackpool is so important. But also, all of our seaside resorts benefit from a strong economy that has seen low interest rates, low unemployment, high employment, and not the disastrous boom and bust policies of the 18 years before us. David Cameron. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. In his budget, the Chancellor put up the rate of corporation tax faced by every small business in the country. Why? Because overall, it was better for business that we, we cut. Yes. Overall, it was better for business that we cut the level of corporation tax. We've now taken corporation tax down from 33p in the pound to 28p in the pound. We also have taken capital gains for small businesses down from 40% to 10%. And that is why there have been such a growth in small businesses over the past 10 years. Someone needs to tell the Prime Minister there are two rates of corporation tax and the one on small businesses is going up. Yeah. And that's going to be paid by every firm in the country. When it comes to large companies, the Chancellor followed our advice and cut the rate and simplified the system. But when it comes to small companies, he's done the opposite. He's increased the rate and he's made the system more complicated. So why is he punishing small firms? punishing small firms, as I just pointed out to the Right Honourable Gentleman, as a result of the tax measures that the Chancellor has announced over the years, actually, according to the international surveys, the United Kingdom became the biggest recipient of foreign direct investment of any country in the world. Well, small businesses also benefit from this. And if we look, for example, at the rate 
paid on capital gains by small businesses. When we came to power, it was 40%. We took it down to 10%. That is a huge boost for small businesses. And let me say something else to him. That small businesses, like large businesses, benefit from a strong economy. Over these past 10 years, we've delivered a strong economy. The only experience he's had as someone running our economy Yes, was being present on Black Wednesday. Hardly a great recommendation. What business is interested in is, the, is in the tax rates they're going to have to pay now, and they're going up. The Prime Minister quotes the foreign direct investment figures. Doesn't he know that half of that is accounted for by one company, Shell, having a restructuring? Perhaps someone ought to actually, you ought to actually bother to read the budget. The Forum of Private Business said it would further burden them. The British Chamber of Commerce says it's damaging for small, small and medium-sized businesses. The Federation of Small Businesses say they feel dismay. And two-thirds of small businesses say it will have a damaging effect. And I choose to believe them rather than him. Yeah. He's only got 12 weeks left as First Lord of the Treasury. Instead of the pointless search for the Environment Secretary's backbone, why doesn't he use his power and withdraw this tax hike? But once again, of course, for the, for the right honourable gentleman, what he does... Yeah, the reason why we got into the economic problems we did when he was working at the Treasury before was because the last Conservative government promised tax cuts and spending rises at the same time. What is his proposal now? Exactly the same. Tax cuts and spending rises, and it will lead, as it did then, to precisely the same result. So we've got a very, very clear choice between a Chancellor that has delivered the strongest economy on record... There's a lot of shouting. And Mr. Mr Stewart, you're doing very well at the shouting, so perhaps you can be quiet and, and, and give us all a good example. Give us all a good example. Prime Minister, between a Chancellor that has the strongest economic record of any Chancellor in any main country over the past 10 years and a Conservative Party that was a disaster economically when it was last in power and would be a disaster again if it ever got its hands back on the economy. John McFall. Prime Minister, that businesses in my constituency have welcomed the budget enthusiastically with the reduction in corporation tax, that individuals in the constituency, particularly pensioners, have welcomed the increase in their threshold for tax and savings. But there is deep concern by a number of my constituents that that economic prosperity will not prevail. What reassurance can the Prime Minister give me that after May, that constituents won't be faced with extra taxes and we ensure the continuation of this prosperity. Of course, as my honourable friend rightly implies, the single most important thing for all businesses is a strong and stable economy. And the thing that wrecked so many businesses in the late 1980s and early 1990s was the second recession under the Conservatives. And the point is, what is important is to keep that stability going, which means why we reject the tax and spending policies of the Conservatives, but also what would be a disaster for local business in Scotland, and that is a 3p on income tax local rate. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Last week's budget cost Britain's charities £70 million a year in gift aid. Now, the Chancellor didn't mention this in his budget speech. He failed to mention it in the Red Book, and he failed to mention it in any of the budget documentation. 
Was the Prime Minister informed and does he approve? I approve entirely of the budget because actually over the past few years, as a result of what the Chancellor has done, we've given enormous support to charities. Oh yes. And what is more, we are going to give further support to charities in one very important way. We are going to allow charities to perform much more of the tasks traditionally done by the traditional public sector, for example, in the management of offenders. And he and his colleagues voted against that when the bill came before the House. Mark Henry. Uh, my right honourable friend will be aware that by next year, NHS spending in this country will have tripled since this government came to office. Yeah, 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 yeah. We have, we have 85,000 85, more nurses, 32,000 more doctors. Is it, not, is it not truly the case that the NHS is safe in this government's hands? The, uh, the Honourable Member's Officer, Member's Officer was saying, where is the money gone? Well, I tell them where it's gone. Right, well, let me tell them. We have now got the lowest waiting lists and lowest waiting times on record. When we first came to office, people were often dying waiting for their operation on the National Health Service. Today, they get it. We've had 100,000 fewer deaths from heart disease. That's where the money's gone. We're saving tens of thousands of lives in better and faster cancer treatment. That's where the money's gone. And it's gone, of course, yes, in better pay for nurses and doctors and consultants, proposed by us and opposed by them. While the Prime Minister plans his lecture tour, is he aware that many servicemen and women whom he has committed to active tours overseas have returned in a traumatised state to barracks alongside troops training to go on active deployment to the very same theatres? With five years until Selioke is fully operational, he surely still has the time to delay closure of the Royal Naval Hospital Haslar next week and to commission specialist military units in designated hospitals to provide proper treatment to, treatment to our troops. What he is saying simply is not correct, and it does nothing for the morale of our armed forces for it to be said that they are not getting proper treatment, if he just listens to me for a moment, if he goes and visits Celio, because it is important for our forces that their families are not worried by stories that are completely inaccurate, that their loved ones do not get the proper care that they should have. If he would go and visit Celio, they will tell him exactly what they are doing with a military-managed ward, with the best specialist care, and they will also explain to him why the decision taken, in fact, by the last Conservative government, though rightly, to close down Haslar is necessary and correct because of the degree of specialist treatment these troops, when they're severely injured, need today. And it simply is not correct to say they're not getting excellent care from the Defence Medical Services, who are superb, and also from the general NHS staff, who are utterly dedicated. Mr Speaker, no one wants to see too much central government control. But, 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 but what can we do about Conservative county councils like Kent, who have just squandered £300,000 supporting an airline that never took off, that wants to set up a television station of its own, and is paying its chief executive more money than the Prime Minister? Well, well. Interesting, uh, it's an interesting thought, that, really, for the future. But anyway, uh, can I say to my, <laughs> my honourable friend that I think there's a, very, uh, there's a very clear remedy in those circumstances, which is to vote Labour in the local elections. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Prime Minister just talked about better and faster cancer treatment. The Royal College of Radiologists says that uh, cancer victims should receive radiotherapy treatment within four weeks of having an operation. A constituent of mine who's been a nurse for 40 years in the NHS was operated on in January and is now having to wait 12 weeks before she gets her radiotherapy treatment, a common waiting time in Kent. Can he explain why, in this vital life-saving area, in which he has poured lots of public money, things for my constituents are getting worse, not better? Look, obviously, um, obviously I, I, I can't comment on the individual case because I don't know about it, but I'm very happy to look into it. And incidentally, I'm not suggesting in any shape or form, when the health service treats a million people every 36 hours, that there aren't either people who don't get the care that they deserve or who don't still have to wait too long. However, let me just point out that within his strategic health authority, there are over 4,000 more nurses, 600 more consultants, 400 more GPs, 450 more dentists, I may say, but also that there has been a massive investment in the health service, which has meant that overall, whereas there used to be thousands of people that would wait, 12 months, 18 months or more, there's now virtually no one who waits more than six months. So I'm happy to look into the individual case he mentions, but the fact is the whole business of waiting and access within the health service over these past 10 years has been transformed. Now we need to go further, and we will because by the end of next year we'll have an 18-week maximum inpatient and outpatient, including diagnostics, and an average of seven to eight weeks. That would end, effectively, traditional waiting in the National Health Service. So there may still be cases, which are obviously wrong if they exist, where people are waiting too long, but it is surely important to balance that up with the overall picture, which is immensely positive. David Taylor. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. In a statement to mark the 50th anniversary of the EU, the Pope said that uh, Europe's uh, moral, uh, its cultural and its historic values were forged by Christianity, that the EU was denying those facts and that any loss of uh, uh, the, the detachment from its Christian roots by Europe was a, a form of apostasy, uh, not just from uh, God but from itself. As a leading Christian in this place, would he care to comment on the Pope's view? <laughs> Um, frank, frankly, I wouldn't. Uh, um, I think it's best if uh, I don't think the, spoke, the Pope needs me as his spokesman. So I think it's best that the Pope makes his statement, I make mine. But I, I would say that the, the I think what we can be very proud of is that the values represented by the European Union, where we now have a unified Europe, East and West, are something which we should be immensely proud of, and without in any way detracting from our firm, independent sovereignty as a nation, I think the European Union has been good for this country over the past 30 years and been good for Europe over its lifetime. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Does the Prime Minister accept that a commitment to exclusively peaceful means must of necessity include the dismantling of all terrorist structures, including the IRA Army Council? The Independent Monitoring Commission are the body that is charged with deciding whether that commitment to exclusively peaceful and non-violent means is being adhered to or not. Um, as uh, the, the Honourable Gentleman will know, they have a further report coming in the next few weeks, but they have made their statement that the IRA indeed is abiding uh, by that principle, and I think they are the people best placed to make the judgment. Make whole. 
Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. My right honourable friend will recall on the 21st of March 1993, the IRA exploded two bombs in Bridge Street in Warrington, killing Jonathan Ball and Tim Parry. My close friends, Colin and Wendy Parry, have worked over the last 14 years tirelessly to build community relations in Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland and made a unique contribution to the peace process. Could I ask my right honourable friend to redouble his efforts and work very closely with the right honourable gentleman for Antrim North, the member for Belfast West, our honourable friend the member for Foyle and the, right, the honourable lady the member for North Down to make sure that the foundations that were laid on Monday result in a permanent peace in Northern Ireland and that Jonathan and Timothy didn't die in vain. Well, first of all, can I uh, pay tribute to what my honourable friend has done on this issue over the years? And I think this is um, an appropriate moment, even as we look forward in Northern Ireland, to remember uh, Jonathan Ball, Tim Barry, and I think Bronwyn Vickers also, who was injured in the explosion and died some time later. And we again extend our sympathy to um, the families of all those victims of the Troubles. Um, in respect of, of um, Colin and Wendy Parry, I think uh, they have shown a, a quite extraordinary spirit of forgiveness, of determination to, um, to promote reconciliation. And I think that they can be very, very proud of the work that they have done over, over the years. And in the end, it is interesting that ultimately the spirit that they represent has triumphed over the hatred and the discord and the conflict. And that surely should give us hope for the future. Yeah. Alex Salmon, can I... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> order. Uh, order. Is an honourable member of this house who must be here. Can I, can I strike a note of consensus with the Prime Minister? On uh, Monday he said the election campaign in Scotland was going brilliantly. I agree with him. <laughs> and in his latest brilliant foray into Scotland, he attacks Sir George Matheson, the former chairman of the Royal Bank of Scotland, as being self-indulgent and suggested he wasn't a real businessman. Can the Prime Minister tell me what is the more self-indulgent? Somebody of vast experience who speaks up for independence has been good for Scottish economy and Scottish society, or is it someone who proffers vast loans in the hope of buying a seat in the House of Lords? First of all, let me say to him, I didn't criticise Sir George as a businessman at all, but I did criticise his view on independence, which I'm entitled to do. And let me explain to the, right, the Honourable Gentleman why I believe separation is so wrong. Scotland is benefiting from the Union, just as England benefits from the Union. We, we are able to have a stronger Scottish economy with 200,000 more jobs, with Scottish unemployment below the UK average for the first time in a generation, his policies would not just tear Scotland out of the uh, UK. Order. Let me say that the honourable gentleman was heard because I allowed it, yes. and he will listen to the Prime Minister. Yes. Prime Minister. Of course, the polls indicate this is a real fight, but people in Scotland are going to have to make up their minds as to whether they want the policy that he represents, which is separation, with all the risks that that entails, with tax and spending policies that would mean a £5,000 hit for average households, with a 3p local income tax, or whether they want to continue with what has happened over the last 10 years for the Scottish economy and Scottish living standards, which is that for the first time Scotland's unemployment is below the UK average, and when we've had 200,000 extra jobs and a booming Scottish economy. Now that is the choice, and I look forward to debating it with them from now until polling day.
Guardian Unlimited.